0: Thank you so much, Dave, and thank you, Claire and Pippa, for just doing such a fantastic job of worship, Um, and thank you to all of you who are joining us uh, on the live stream from home. Uh, It's wonderful to be with you and uh, to be enjoying service together today, even if it's not in person, it is online. Uh, We're believing that God is is moving today and that the Lord is able to touch you, to uh, change your hearts to do wonderful things in your lives, even in the comfort of your own homes. So it's my honor and privilege to be preaching today. And before we do dive into scripture, I'm going to uh, just read a short prayer uh, of dedication. I'm also going to do the sensible thing here and just change the mic. Pop shield. Excuse me. There we go. Um, Wonderful. So let's. That's it, mate. I've got it. Thank you, Dave. Here we go. Let's open up in prayer. Oh, Lord, we commune with thee every day, but weekdays are worldly days, and secular concerns reduce heavenly impressions. We bless thee therefore for the sacred day to our souls when we can wait upon thee and be refreshed. We thank thee for the instructions of religion by use of which we draw near to thee and thou to us. We rejoice in another Lord's day when we call off our minds from the cares of the world and attend upon thee without distraction. Let our retirement be devout, our conversation edifying, our reading pious, our hearing profitable, that our souls may be quickened and elevated. We are going to the house of prayer. Pour upon us the spirit of grace and supplication. We are going to the house of praise. Awaken in us every grateful and cheerful emotion. We are going to the house of instruction. Give testimony to the word preached. And glorify it in the hearts of all who hear. May it enlighten the ignorant, awaken the careless, reclaim the wandering, establish the weak, comfort the feeble minded, make ready a people for their Lord. Be a sanctuary to all who cannot come, forget not those who never come, and do thou bestow upon us benevolence towards our dependents. Forgiveness towards our enemies, peaceableness towards our neighbors, openness towards our fellow Christians. Thanks be to God. Amen. Today I'm speaking to you and preaching out of 1 John chapter 4 verses 1 to 6. So if you want to open up your Bibles and thumb over there, we're going to be focusing on those six verses today and I'll read them for you from the English Standard Version. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Amen. One of the saddest things in the Christian life that I've experienced personally, and I'm sure you have too, is seeing friends depart from the faith. There are so many heartbreaking stories that I could share today, personal to me. People who are new in my youth who were running well, maybe even leading Bible studies, speaking at events, telling people about the Jesus who they said that they loved and knew. But some of these people have now walked away from Christianity entirely, so it seems. And I'm sure that you've got stories of your own. And it can be really hard to process. It can be so hard to walk through something like that without questioning what's going on. And I think especially when it's somebody who's had a level of influence in your life. And uh, certainly that's the case for me. What, What happened to these people? You know, why does it happen? How can it happen? These questions come to us commonly when we experience things like this were they really saved in the first place well what I know for sure is that there's still hope on this side of eternity for anyone who has wandered from the narrow way And that's what I have to hold on to. No no matter what things look like or how hopeless things might seem for them, uh, I can still pray for them. I can still boldly approach the throne of grace on this side of eternity and bring them before my Lord Jesus Christ and pray that they might turn back to him and begin to sort of track on that narrow path again. I think one thing that's absolutely crystal clear in every case in every case of every person I know who's walked away from Christianity, is that it didn't happen out of the blue. It didn't happen out of the blue. It didn't come from nowhere, but it happened slowly in increments. Little by little, uh, they took baby steps in the wrong direction. Over a period of many months and sometimes even years, they slowly began to process out of the fellowship of other believers, and away from the truth. In every single case, I believe that at first it was a seed of doubt that was sown in their minds. First, perhaps, it was that they began to doubt the relevance of the Bible. How many of you have experienced that doubt? Every hand should be up. Any Christian that claims to have never experienced doubts, I I find very doubtful. Doubts are a normal part of the Christian experience. Perhaps at first it began as a seed of doubt upon the relevance of the Bible for today. And then perhaps that doubt grew into being a doubt about the veracity of the Bible, whether the Bible is true. And then perhaps they began to no longer trust what the Bible had to say, or whether it was dependable. And in the end, They were unable to trust that the God that the Bible proclaims is real, is true, is alive today. The question is, where did these doubts come from? How did these doubts arrive in that person's heart? And what caused them to keep stepping on into their doubt rather than holding back and stepping into faith? They carried on down that path of unbelief. Well, I think this is true, and I think the scripture bears this out, is that we don't live in a vacuum. We don't live in a vacuum as Christians. We don't live in a neutral environment. Uh, we live in a hostile environment, in a partisan environment, which is the world. Romans chapter 1, in fact, tells us the sort of unvarnished truth about us, about us as a, uh, as a race, as mankind, and it isn't very pretty reading. It says that all those outside of relationship with God are suppressing the truth about God in unrighteousness. That's Romans 1.18. Also, it goes on to say in the same chapter that people outside of covenant with God are not searching for God. In fact, it says that they are haters of God. Add to this fact that we are naturally predisposed against the truth of God before we come to Christ. Add to that the fact that Jesus warns us in Matthew 7, beware. Did you know that much of Jesus' ministry was a ministry of warning? He warned his disciples and his followers again and again and again against false teachers. He says in Matthew 7 verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravenous wolves. Again, he warns in Matthew 24, verse 24, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, even if possible, the elect. So there's a battle afoot. That's the context that we're all living in. That's why these things happen, is that we aren't living in a neutral environment, in a vacuum, but we live in a world where there is conflict, where there's a battle for every heart and every soul and every mind. It's a spiritual battle. Now, when I say that, why do I add the word spiritual in there? Why not just leave it at, There's a battle? Well, we've got to say spiritual because that's the front of the battle. That's where the warfare takes place. And what's the spiritual? The spiritual is the the unseen realm. And I think it's worth us noting that we live in a world where there is absolutely a natural realm. Things are real. We have a physicality to us. We have physical bodies. Uh, We interact with the world uh, in a physical manner. But equally, there is a spiritual world which is every bit, if not more, real than the natural world that we inhabit. And that is where this spiritual warfare takes place, in the spiritual, which makes it even more dangerous and even more tricky for us to navigate. Why is that the case? Well, the Bible says that those who are not in relationship with God cannot see the spiritual. They cannot know what's going on around them in the spiritual. First Corinthians 2 says this, that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit, nor can he. Uh, Romans 8 says the same. Um, So therefore, if the battle is being waged in the spirit realm, those who are not of the Spirit, who have not been born of God, are completely unaware of it. They are sitting ducks. So we should be aware at first that any warfare that is spiritual is far more dangerous than any warfare Ultimately, that is natural. You see, spiritual warfare will end in victory or defeat. And in the spirit realm, there is no end. Uh, God is eternal. And if we lose a battle in the spiritual realm, ultimately, uh, then our fate is sealed for eternity. Uh, So this is an important fact for us to realize. We're talking today about spiritual warfare. The path that led my friends away from Jesus ultimately... It didn't begin with them believing something that was obviously directly opposed to scriptural truth. It, be- it began with them believing something that was almost like Christianity, but not quite. Almost like Christianity. And today we are talking about the subject of discernment. Discernment, that's the word we're looking at today. And this is the delineation that we have to make. This is the discernment that a Christian has to make. As Charles Spurgeon said, the discernment is not between right and wrong, but between right and almost right. That is the level of discernment that we must operate in if we're not to accept the lies of the enemy. Verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, To see whether they are from God now the first six verses of this chapter here kind of drop from out of nowhere clearly the Apostle is wanting to take a moment once again to to warn the believers in the church against these false doctrines what is apparent that false uh, false prophets or false teachers have gone out into the world Uh, in the first century AD False prophets and false teachers were already there in strength, in numbers. People were masquerading as Christians. They were giving themselves titles, prophet, apostle, teacher. This was common even in the first century of the church's existence. So how much more so today? right? This this is a time when there were apostles who walked with Jesus, who moved in supernatural signs and wonders, whose words were the words that became Scripture, and now uh, we live in a world where surely uh, we must also have those same things happening the, the enemy is still using the same tricks to try and to deceive us interestingly the greek for false prophet is pseudo prophetai. so we're talking here about pseudo prophets pseudo apostles pseudo teachers that look christian but ultimately are not christian you'd think that it would be easy to tell them apart to tell the pseudo prophets apart from the true prophets. But apparently, you know what? It wasn't that easy. And that's what this passage deals with today. Verse 1, as we've read, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Verse 1 begins with two imperatives. An imperative is a command. It begins with two commands. Firstly, a a negative command. Do not believe every spirit, and secondly, a positive command, test the spirits, okay? John is calling them to use discernment. He's calling to them, sorry, he's calling them to discriminate, to discriminate. Now, that's a word that's kind of not very uh, nice to use in common parlance these days. It's kind of, uh, it's become a bit of a dirty word. But actually, we, we, we use discernment every day, don't we? We have to be discriminate about which medicine we'll pick out of the cupboard. You know, if I'm giving medicine to the kids, you know, I want to be sure that I'm picking cowpole and not something else, right? I have to discriminate about which medicine I'll pick out. Uh, The same might be true of what you reach for in the fridge. If you're like me, you're getting older and your belly is more susceptible to sugary snacks, you've got to discriminate about what you will pull out of the fridge. So he's calling us to discriminate between truth and false. He's basically saying, look, Don't be so gullible. Don't be in a rush to yell amen to everything that you hear. Sometimes as a Christian, it's okay to say, you know what? I'm hearing that, but I'm not sure about that. I don't know. I need to go and check it out. Being a Christian, John is saying, isn't about like a kind of mindless, easy believism, which I think is how Christianity is falsely portrayed, actually, in the world, that it's this religion for people that are just so gullible, they'll believe anything, you know. You, you could get a Christian to, to believe that you know, a square is a circle. Uh, all you need to do is tell them that it'll make them feel good and they'll believe it, right? Uh, but in fact, Christianity is anything but. It's not about mindless, easy believism. In fact, that's what the cults are about. If any belief system is about mindless, easy believism, it's the cults. The cults will say, disengage your mind. Disengage, switch off your mind. Okay, Your mind's getting in the way. Your mind is an, is an obstruction. Get the mind out of the way and just believe this. Why? Because it's going to make you feel better. It's going to make you more successful, more wealthy. It's going to give your body health. It will give you a sense of peace. Now, Christianity is not like the cults. Christianity isn't necessarily primarily interested in how truth makes you feel. It's interested in what is true in the first place. Christianity is a, a faith, a religion that is concerned with what is true. And a healthy church, a healthy gathering of Christians together, ought to be a body, a community, where there are individuals who care about what is true. They're concerned about believing what's What comports with reality here? What's true? They won't believe something just because it makes them feel good. They'll believe it because it is true. And if the fruit of that belief is that you receive some blessing from the Lord, then wonderful. So how do we know then what is true? How do we know? How do we know which spirit to believe and which one to deny? Well, John follows up and says, test the spirits, test them, test the spirits. Now, a little bit of explanation first. We can't be thinking of spirits like they're disembodied souls, okay? This just isn't a word that we really use anymore um, in life, is it, you know? Um, What spirit are you of? What spirit are you believing? Um, I, I don't think that John is talking here about kind of disembodied ghosts or souls or something strange, There are a couple of interpretations of what he might be meaning here. Number one, people believe that he might be just talking about those individuals who are calling themselves prophets. Okay, He might just be talking about them, and he's talking about them because they claim to be of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, no, you're not. You're lowercase s. You're of a different spirit, not the Holy Spirit. So first off, he could be just talking about them. Secondly, the other explanation is that he means this, he means that actually, behind every individual, behind every teaching that claims to be from God, there is a spiritual influence, either of the Holy Spirit or of some other spirit. And I think, to be honest, both explanations are possible, both kind of work Um, He's certainly referring to these teachers who are claiming to teach on behalf of God and prophesy in his name. And it's also true that behind every teaching that claims to be from God, there is a spiritual influence. As I say, either of the Holy Spirit inspiring the teaching of the, the church or of some other spirit, some pseudo Holy Spirit pretending, masquerading to be the real thing. Now, the second command follows the first and is a positive one. We've got to test the spirits. Have you ever heard the phrase, be a Berean? You ever heard that? You want to be a Berean, okay? That comes from Acts chapter 17, where Paul says that the Bereans, who are a group of Jews from Berea, they were more fair-minded than the Jews who were in Thessalonica, as he'd been traveling through this region preaching the gospel Why were these Bereans more fair-minded? Well, it says that because they readily received what Paul was teaching, but they did something else. They went and daily checked out the Scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. So to be a Berean is to receive what you're hearing, to assess it, and then to go to the Scriptures daily to see if what you've heard is true. That's what it means to be a Berean. John Calvin said that the faithful should not receive any doctrine thoughtlessly and without discrimination. That's what discernment is. First, Theth- Theth- First Thessalonians 5.21 says, test everything and hold fast to what is good. How do we do that? How do we discriminate between the truth and the lie as a Christian? Well, the obvious answer is we do what the Bereans were doing, which is to go to the Scriptures. Now, it's worth remembering when the Bereans were testing what Paul was saying against the Scriptures, what Scriptures were they using? Yeah, they were using the Old Testament. They certainly weren't going to Acts because that was the book that was being written about them at the time. So they had no New Testament, but they went to the Old Testament to see if what Paul was preaching was in line with that. Now we today, we have the New Testament, we have the writings of the Apostles, Uh, we have the Old Testament too, we have the Gospels, and it's against these writings that we measure what we are hearing. So we weigh up what's being said, what's being taught, what's being prophesied against what the Scriptures say. And I want to be clear as well. It's not just that it's enough to have the scriptures, is it? It's not enough to just have the Bible. We also need the Holy Spirit. You see, without the Holy Spirit, we would have no guide. We would have no spirit within us who is able to reveal to us the meaning of the scriptures in the way that they're intended. Now, I know this. I've studied uh, at university where people would read the Bible and come up with all kinds of weird and wonderful interpretations of what the Bible was saying. Now, that's possible if you come to it with an unrenewed mind. We need the Holy Spirit too to help us to interpret the Bible, to come to a right and true perception of what's being said. And then thirdly, do you know what? This is one that we don't often preach, but we need to hear. In order to come to a true understanding of what Scripture is saying and to discern against the truth and the lie, we need one another. We need one another. As a church, that is so important. That's why we come together as a body. That's why we're in fellowship. But part of that is to be guarded against the lies of the enemy. You see, when we come together, we can share our perspectives. We can share a word of prophecy and together we can weigh that word. Together we can try and listen to every interpretation and end up, hopefully, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, see which one holds the most water. See which one is the correct one. Because I think in the world, there is this understanding that, you know what, we've all just got different perspectives and that's fine, you know? you believe that the earth is flat (laughs) i believe the earth is round right you believe the bible is true i believe the bible is false and that's fine you've got your truth and i've got mine that's what we call relativism now i think somewhat that 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 kind of relativism you've got your truth i've got mine has kind of infiltrated the church in the past 50 years to the point where we as Christians now say, well, you believe the Bible says that. I believe the Bible says this. Yours contradicts what mine. Your understanding contradicts what mine is. And that's fine. You know, let's just live with it. We, we all love the same Jesus, don't we? Let's just crack on. But you see, we believe in a Bible that puts forward truth as being objective. Something is true or it is false, right? There's no such thing as two opposing truths that are both true that contradict one another in Scripture. So we have to believe that the Bible, when it teaches about things, it does teach a clear, a clear view on who Jesus is. It teaches us a clear view on who God is. It teaches us clearly about who we are. And it teaches us clearly about how we get to know God, right? We have to agree on that and begin from that basis that the Bible does teach things clearly, um, and that we can arrive through the help of the Holy Spirit and fellowship, we can arrive at a consensus and an understanding about what it does say. John goes on and he strengthens his two commands, to not believe every spirit and to test the spirits. He strengthens it with a warning. He says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. We've got to remember this is the first century. This is the the, the, t- the time when there was exponential growth in the church and it had only taken a matter of months and short few years for Satan to mass a whole army of counterfeit prophets and counterfeit teachers and counterfeit apostles and send them out into the world. Now the devil, he might not be able to create brand new things but he can certainly counterfeit things and he's become quite good at it. And David Guzik says in his commentary, The devil doesn't care at all if you know Jesus or love Jesus or pray to Jesus as long as it's a false Jesus. A make-believe Jesus. A Jesus who is not there. Who therefore cannot save. If the devil's counterfeit prophets and teachers, if they came dressed in red with horns and a poker we'd be all right, wouldn't we? We'd be pretty well guarded. We'd see them coming a mile off. But I think because Jesus compares them to ravenous wolves, I think we can look at the way that a wolf hunts its prey. Does the wolf come head on and attack its prey? No way. It stalks its prey. It stays camouflaged. It hides behind trees. It it stalks in ditches so that its prey doesn't get to see it until... It's too late. Just as the wolf stalks his prey, so the devil tries to deceive through stealth, through camouflage. He makes his servants hard to spot. Jesus even says, doesn't he? He says, they'll come to you, not in wolf's clothing, but in sheep's clothing. In sheep's clothing. What's a sheep? When Jesus talks about sheep, he's talking about his people, his followers, isn't he? So they're going to come, these false prophets, but they're going to look like followers of Jesus. What would that look like? Well, they'll probably have a Bible under their arm. They may even quote from that Bible when they teach. And you know what? They'll probably even appear really sincere, really charming, inoffensive. Jesus even said that false prophets... They will come and they will perform signs and wonders. Not just any old signs, but Jesus says they'll perform great signs. So we have to remember that. This is getting really tricky now. So you're telling me that a false prophet or a false teacher could be somebody stood behind a pulpit with a Bible. They may quote from that Bible. They may look a Christian. They may be super sincere They're not going to look demonic necessarily, and they can even perform signs and wonders. Goodness me. We've got to remember in all this that the devil can only counterfeit. That the church too has the gift of prophecy. That the church too is a church that is a prophetic church that is filled with signs and wonders. The devil can only imitate. He can't create new things. So we're not powerless against these things, but it does make things a bit trickier especially when the devil sends these wolves, but they're in sheep's clothing. We see this, don't we, um, in the Old Testament. We see pharaohs, magicians, mimicking Moses' signs. And they were actually able to do a pretty good job up to a point, weren't they? they? They were almost convincing. So what's this mean? What do we draw from this? It simply means this, brothers and sisters. It means that signs and wonders... Do not prove that somebody is a genuine Christian minister. And I hear that a lot today. Well, they got more miracles. they got a lot of things going on. I'm not wanting to point the finger at any place in particular right now, but you hear it said. Well, they're moving in power. Okay, but Jesus did say false prophets and false Christs will come into the world and they will work and perform powerful signs and wonders what else does it mean it means this just because somebody acts like a christian doesn't mean they are a christian just because somebody is able to stand up and quote the bible at you doesn't mean that this is a christian teacher what's the aim of these false prophets in all of this in all of this smoke and mirrors in all of this deception well ultimately their desire is to influence you. It's to get you to believe certain things that they're teaching. Jesus says, doesn't he? For false prophets, false Christ will arise, perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray. That's their aim to lead astray, even if possible, the elect. How will they lead you astray or how will they try to lead you astray? Well, it's going to be through false doctrine. False doctrine. 2 Peter 2.1 says this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. I want you to catch a few things here. Number one, heresy, you understand what heresy is. It's a false teaching. It's it's what we said earlier, or what Charles Spurgeon said, that it's the the difference between right and almost right. Okay, almost right is not right. It's wrong. (laughs) Okay, now a heresy isn't just something that is banal. It's not something that is just able to be ignored. The Bible says heresy is destructive. It's destructive. It's going to make a destructive impact in the hearts and minds of those who believe that heresy. Moreover, those who are teaching heresy, the Bible says they're not going to be doing it openly and plainly so as to be caught out. But they're going to bring in these heresies secretly. They're going to do it quietly. Maybe they want to come into your church or your home group and they want to lead a session. They're going to bury that heresy. They're going to speak with um, words which try to cloak and hide the ugly, destructive heresy that's hidden under there. So we have to be careful. We have to listen. Often heresy is taught by inference rather than openly and plainly so as christians we have to be aware of that and that's why at this church we try to be as open and upfront uh, as we can with what we believe Uh, it's better to be clear um, than it is to be sort of vague in our belief And, and john calvin said i think very wisely ambiguity is the fortress of heretics so after saying all this that False prophets can be extremely hard to spot. They're not going to come with a forked tail and cloven hooves, but they're going to look like a Christian. Uh, They are maybe even going to use a Bible and they're going to be able to, some of them, perform signs and wonders. This is getting really hard. So, how are we ever going to tell the false from the true? Well, the answer is found in this the lies are found. The lies are found in what they teach, it's not in how they make you feel. It's not in the fact that maybe you felt good in one of their meetings. What do they teach? What is their doctrine? That's what we have to pay attention to. Not how do they make me feel. Like I say, and how are we going to do that? How are we going to test that? We test it against the Word of God. Their teaching is going to be iffy at some level. Okay, At some level, that teaching is going to be dodgy. And a false prophet will have dodginess in their teaching, where it concerns Jesus, where it concerns God, where it concerns the gospel. It will be central issues, okay? We don't believe that John is teaching here that every prophet or every person who prophesies or teaches has to be doctrinally perfect. That's not what he's saying. In fact, his um, his proof here of whether somebody's a false prophet is whether they deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. That's quite a biggie, isn't it? It's quite a biggie. Um, So we're talking about there's going to be an error and it's going to be something big. It's going to be something about the person of Jesus, whether he's just a man or whether he's God but not a man. There's going to be something iffy in there. And in John's day, the telltale sign of a false prophet was that they would preach that Jesus was God but not human. He was not human. Nowadays, often it's It's more probable to find a false prophet preaching that Jesus was human but not God. But the same rule applies. This is a big error. This is a heresy concerning something central to the gospel. There are some today that teach that Jesus was just a born-again man like you or me. And that given the right circumstances that in theory you or I could have done what Jesus did. The same rule would run true there. This is a false prophet. As I say, the litmus test for us to pick apart who is false and who is true is always doctrine. It's always teaching. Do these people, does this individual teach what the apostles taught? Does their teaching line up with Scripture? Or are they twisting Scripture? Are they ignoring large portions of Scripture? Finally, Verses 4 to 6, we have this little kind of trio of phrases. We have little children, you are from God. And then in verse 5, they are from the world. And then verse 6, we are from God. So we've got a you, they, and a we. John starts off by addressing the believers. He says, you are from God and you have overcome them. Who is the them? The false prophets, the false teachers. And how have these Christians overcome the false prophets? Because of God, because he who is in us, he who is in the believer is greater than he who is in the world, the devil. We overcome the devil and his army of false teachers and pseudo-prophets, not because of our own abilities or our own confessions or our own faith, but because of the friend and comforter who lives inside us, who takes up residence in us, the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit conquers your heart, I'll tell you what, He's never going to give up a yard of ground. The Holy Spirit's never going to cede ground to the devil in the heart of one of God's children. He will not be overpowered. It's not a fair fight between God and the devil. God will always victorious in his battle for the heart of his faithful children john 10 verse 5 says my sheep know my voice to paraphrase it says they do not know the voice of another and they won't follow them jesus's sheep only know his voice as their shepherd and they will not listen to another that's a wonderful truth That's a wonderful truth to hear that. If you are a child of God, if you are one of Jesus' sheep, you will not be led astray by another. And then we move on to they. They are of the world. These prophets, these pseudo-teachers, they're of the world. They're of the spirit of the world and they teach us from the world. So when they speak from this Worldly spirit, guess what? Those who are in the world listen to them, they want to hear what they've got to say. The world is attracted to false teachers and false prophets. That's one of the strangest things that the Bible tells us is that you know what? False teachers they're going to prosper to a degree, they will be popular perhaps. You know, we think that that's impossible. How could somebody who's trying to trick God end up winning people to themselves? But that's exactly what happens. Because what they're saying is appealing to those who are of the world. They appeal to the things that the world values, to to money, to fame, power, influence. Scottish preacher Alistair Begg, I'm nearly winding up now, but Scottish preacher Alistair Begg said this, he told his congregation, truth be told, I could get this church having four packed out services every Sunday within the space of a year. All I'd need to do is stop preaching from the scriptures, throw in a few more anecdotes, some funny stories, and we'd be halfway there. Isn't that the truth? There's... Preachers of the Word, we must always use our faithfulness to the Scriptures as the measure of whether we're being successful rather than the number of bums on seats on a Sunday or figures on our live viewing, as the case may be now. Finally, John ends with us. He says, he talks about us. He says, we, us, we are from God. Who's he talking about? Well, do you remember way back in the first chapter of John, he talked about an us then, didn't he? He was talking about the us of him and the apostles. He's referring to the apostles, who I think, believing then, he was around about the last of them. He's referring to the apostles of Christ. He says this, whoever listens to what we say is of God. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. There was a man called Serinthus, who was actually a contemporary of John. Serinthus was a highly educated man. And although none of his writings have survived to today, we do know that he was a very influential character. And it's actually likely that John knew him and that his teachings were actually some of the teachings that John is writing against in this book. Interestingly, Cerinthus didn't deny Jesus. He claimed to follow Jesus. But he taught some quite strange things that were different than John's confession of who Jesus was. He taught that Jesus became the Christ at his baptism. And that that anointing of the Holy Spirit left him on the cross. In this, Serinthus demonstrated that he didn't want to listen to what the apostles said. He'd got a preferable interpretation of who Jesus was. He liked his interpretation of who Jesus was better than what the apostles said he was. Now, how can we possibly apply this test to hear what John is saying today, what the apostles were saying since They've all long since passed into glory. How can we tell that we're listening to the voice of those apostles and their message? And who isn't listening to it, moreover? Well, it's quite a simple answer, really. The voice of the apostles, the teaching of the apostles, has been preserved for us in the New Testament. So, this is the final test. The Holy Spirit's preserved these teachings for us in the canon of the New Testament. So whoever is listening and submitting themselves to the teachings of the Scriptures is of God. Whoever does not is not of God. Brothers and sisters, I want to pray with you just quickly. And then we'll go into a time of worship. Father God, we thank you that even though we live in a world that is not neutral, in a world that is hostile to your truth, you have given us a friend and a comforter and a teacher who is greater than the spirit that is in the world. And by that spirit, we overcome. By that spirit, we know that we're not going to be led astray. Ultimately, because you've come to live within us, you promise to never leave. You promise to guide us in your way every day of our life until we come to be with you. So Lord, I pray today that firstly, you would bring encouragement to our hearts that you've not abandoned us and that you will not let us be led astray. Secondly, Lord, we pray that if there's anybody listening in today who has fallen foul of these false prophets, these false teachers, and has become ensnared by their teaching, and now they do not know who Jesus is. They do not know whether the Bible is true. They have no assurance of their salvation. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit that their hearts would be enlivened today, their eyes would be opened and they would receive the true Jesus Christ of the Gospels. I pray that you would know Christ as he is right now, today. Father, As we come to worship you again at the end of this service, our prayer is that you would move on us afresh by your Spirit. You would give us a fresh desire to be in the Scriptures daily, just like the Bereans. Lord, to dust off that Bible on the shelf, pull it out, and begin to pour over the pages. Give us a love of truth once more. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.